This is The Churches of the World, Chapter 2, Episode 2. A look into the tablet theory on the authorship of the book of Genesis. Last week, I devoted considerable time to the documentary hypothesis concerning the author of the Pentateuch. This week, I'm doing a similar review of what is generally referred to as the tablet theory as the source of Genesis. The tablet theory proposes that portions of Genesis were originally written on clay tablets by men who personally experienced the events described. The theory indicates that the tablets were then later compiled by Moses. Since the original writers were said to have been eyewitnesses, their accounts would most likely be historically accurate. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are commonly referred to as the books of the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses. Those last four books have many verses that seem to attribute them directly to Moses. But he's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Genesis. This should not come as a surprise if you believe that those books simply present the history of the world through that point in a timeline style. But there will be more on Genesis in a minute. First, a little stage setting, before the tablet theory itself. In what is present-day Iraq sits many ancient villages, towns, and cities. One such is what was once known as the town of Gasur, which is thought to have been founded during the Akkadian Empire in the late 3rd millennium BC. Gasur was located on the Tigris River. Around 1400 BC, the Hurrians absorbed the town and renamed it Nuzi. The history of that site during the intervening period is less clear, though the presence of a few clay tablets from Old Assyria indicates that trade with nearby Assur was taking place. After the fall of the Hurrian kingdom of Mentani to the Hittites, Nuzi fell to the Assyrians and declined. Fast forward a few thousand years. Tablets from Yorgahan Tepe, the modern name for Nuzi, began surfacing as far back as 1896. The first serious archaeological efforts to uncover these tablets was begun in 1925 by Gertrude Bell, an English archaeologist, among many other things. As an aside, if you have not already, please listen to the podcast from Stuff You Missed in History class concerning her life, as it was very interesting. Anyway, Bell noticed tablets appearing in the markets of Baghdad. Soon thereafter, an archaeological dig was organized under the auspices of the Iraq Museum and the American Schools of Oriental Research. Recall back to the King James episode that Oriental means East. Later, Harvard University and Fogg Art Museum became involved. Excavations were conducted through 1931. During these, hundreds of tablets were uncovered, and the finds were eventually published in a series of volumes. These clay tablets showed that the common writing media of that time were raw clay tablets impressed by a wedge-shaped stylus. These tablets were facilitated by the exceptionally fine clay found in the area, which was easy to impress with its distinctive cuneiform, meaning cone-shaped, characters. Inscriptions in stone were also common, but the clay tablets, oven-baked to great hardness, were versatile and durable. To date, around 5,000 tablets have been found, and they are mostly held at the Oriental Institute in Chicago, the Harvard Semitic Museum, and the Iraq Museum in Baghdad. Many of these tablets are simply legal and business documents, and about 25% concern the business transactions of a single family. The vast majority of finds are from the Hurrian period during the 2nd millennia BC, with the remainder dating back to the town's founding during the Akkadian Empire, earlier than 2000 BC. 
Remembering back to my last episode, it had been previously thought that writing did not originate until around 1000 BC. So much for that theory. The most well-known tablet is the so-called Nuzi map, which is currently the oldest known map ever discovered. It is not understood what exactly the Nuzi map shows, even though the majority of the tablet was recovered. This map actually predates Nuzi and originated in the Gasur period as it predates the invasion of the city of Gasur by the Hurrians, who were the ones that renamed it Nuzi. The cache of economic and business documents among which the map was found date to the old Akkadian period around 2360 to 2180 BC. At that time, Gasur was a thriving commercial center, and the texts reveal a vibrant business community. It has been speculated that the tablet might be a record of land holdings or a road map. This tablet, which is approximately two and a half inches square, is inscribed only on one side. It shows the city of Maskin Dor Ebla in the lower left corner, as well as a canal or a river and two mountain ranges. I guess it was their version of a pocket GPS. Overall, these tablets helped to show that the culture of ancient Mesopotamia was far more advanced than what we had previously thought. Further, the tablets helped demonstrate that writing was practiced before 3000 BC, a thousand or more years before Abraham. Vast libraries of clay tablets were also discovered at Ur, Nippur, and other sites. Stories of the creation and of a universal flood, which paralleled the Genesis accounts, were found to be in widespread distribution. Also, the Code of Hammurabi, from roughly the time of Abraham, was found to contain many of the laws by which Abraham governed his actions. Now to the tablet theory of Genesis. This tablet theory, sometimes called the Weissman Hypothesis, is a theory of the authorship and composition of the book of Genesis. It suggests that Moses compiled Genesis from tablets handed down through Abraham and the other patriarchs. Originally advocated by Percy Wiseman in his book, New Discoveries in Babylonia about Genesis, which was published in 1936. A second edition was published by Weissman's son, Donald Wiseman, in the book titled Ancient Records and the Structure of Genesis, A Case for Literary Unity in 1985. The theory received some support from Roland Harrison, a Canadian Old Testament scholar, but otherwise remained unaccepted in academic circles. Air Commodore Percy J. Wiseman, a British military officer who, during his military service, visited many archaeological sites in the Middle East. While doing so, he found the ancient narrative tablets usually in it in colophons. Okay, so what is a colophon? It's merely a word that means an identifying mark used by a printer or publisher. In modern printing, they are usually before the table of contents and are essentially the trademarked logo of the publisher. You've seen them. You probably just didn't know that a word existed to describe what they were. These colophons on the ancient tablets had a very specific format consisting of three parts. First, the phrase, This has been the history, book, genealogy of... fill in the blank. Next, the name of the person who wrote or owned the tablet. And third, a date such as, In the year of the great earthquake. Or, In the third year of king so-and-so. If multiple tablets were involved, there were also catch lines to connect a tablet to the next in sequence. Many of these old records related to the family histories and origins, which were evidently highly important to these people. Wiseman noticed the similarity of many of these to the sections of the book of Genesis. Wiseman also noticed that there are 11 phrases in Genesis which have the same colophon format. 
which have long been identified as the, and this is a Hebrew word, Toldoth passages. Wiseman theorized that these apparent colophons indicated that Genesis had originally been a collection of narrative clay tablets written in cuneiform, like the ancient tablets he had seen. His theory went on to propose that Moses had edited the tablets into a single document onto a scroll. This theory was in contrast with the traditional view that Moses wrote Genesis entirely on his own without any outside sources. It was also in opposition to the documentary hypothesis that Genesis was compiled by much later and unknown editors. Once he had linked the Toledoth in Genesis to the ancient colophons, another point became apparent. Just as the colophons came at the end of the narratives, so too the Toledoths may come at the end of the narratives. Thus, the first of these Toledoth passages in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, refers to the preceding creation account beginning in Genesis 1, rather than beginning the introduction to the succeeding account. This was in contrast with the traditional understanding that since nearly all the Toledoths are immediately followed by a list of descendants of the person named in the Toledoth, the Toledoths were instead thought to be the beginning of the sections in Genesis. This counterproposal has led to some serious questions, because in several cases, it just doesn't seem to fit. For example, Genesis chapter 37 verse 2 begins, These are the generations of Jacob. But from that spot on, the text describes Joseph and his brothers, and almost nothing about Jacob, who was the central character in the previous section. The identification statement of each document, Wiseman noted, was placed at the end of the text, not as currently practiced at the beginning. Similarly, the famous Coda Hammerapi closes with the statement, The righteous laws which Hammerapi, the wise king, has established. End quote. With the discovery of the Nuzi tablets, it is now known that clay tablets were commonly used, at least as far back as what is thought to have been Abraham's time. Therefore, clay is a possible material for the early biblical tablets. However, when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt in possibly the mid-1400s BC, God inscribed the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. That's also a possible material for the Genesis tablets. Most of our preserved information from early Egypt is carved on stone. But stone is heavier and harder to carve than clay. And when you're wandering around the deserts of the Middle East for 40 years, it pays to pack lightly. And stone isn't terribly light. Also, there's an ancient Jewish tradition that the Torah should always be written upon leather, or more specifically calf or sheepskin. It is thought that while wandering, the Israelites had many sheep, so sheepskin would have been readily available. In the first five books of the Bible, traditionally known as the books of Moses, he is generally thought of as the author of the last four. No historical source documents that Moses actually composed and wrote Genesis, but it is widely believed that he compiled the book from other sources. This does not mean that Moses did not have access to patriarchal records, preserved by being written on clay tablets or sheepskin and handed down from father to son, along the lines of Adam to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, with many others in between. In fact, there are 11 verses in Genesis which read, quoting, these are the generations of, end quote, and you fill in the blank. The Hebrew word I previously mentioned, Toledoth, can also mean origin or record of the origins. One note, in Genesis, these statements all come together after the events they described, and the events recorded all took place before the death of the individual so named. Therefore, they may be subscripts or closing signatures, or, as Wiseman proposes, even colophons. 
If this is so, the most likely explanation of them is that Adam, Noah, Shem, and the others each wrote down an account of the events which occurred in his respective lifetime. And then Moses selected and compiled them, along with his own comments into the book we now know as Genesis. Critics of his theory pointed out that the absence of genealogies with the formula in portions of the text demonstrate that the text has been redacted, meaning that the missing passages must have been deleted and lost, but their introductions preserved. Of course, this would be an extremely odd situation. Wiseman countered that such inconsistencies are due to the basic misunderstanding of ancient writing practices. To him, the various portions of Genesis were recorded close to the time in which the events took place, perhaps by eyewitnesses. Logically, if Adam knew the events of creation that occurred from the first through the sixth days, they must have been told to him by God, as Adam was not made until day six, so he could only have known them if God had told him. This logic is reinforced by the words in the New Revised Standard Version, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The details of day 7, the day of rest, are included before this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, thereby completing the full record of the creation, before the closing signature appears. After that statement, and through chapter 5, verse 1, we are told the story of Adam, his wife Eve, and their sons. This story reads very much like a personal account of what Adam knew, saw, and experienced concerning the Garden of Eden, the creation of Eve, their rebellion against God, up until the deeds of their descendants, even though it is written from a third-person perspective. This section ends with the words, This is the book of the generations of Adam. The account of the creation was not then demythologized by later Hebrew or proto-Hebrew scribes. Instead, the original story found in Hebrew scripture was borrowed and potentially corrupted, and then expanded upon by Mesopotamian polytheists. Genesis chapters 12 through 50 were very clearly written as historical narratives as they described the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's twelve sons, who are the ancestral heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. The Jewish people, from earliest biblical times to present day, have traditionally regarded this portion of Genesis as the true record of their history. The only known worshiper of God in his day, Noah, is assumed by wise men to have preserved the pre-flood text for posterity. In turn, Abraham, a monotheist among polytheists and nature worshippers, is assumed to have taken unadulterated copies with him to Canaan. Jacob is then theorized to have taken these, along with family histories recorded while in Canaan, to Egypt. The history of Joseph is assumed to have been written in Egypt, perhaps on papyrus, which was readily available in that place and time. At the same time, the land of Canaan, due to trade, was in regular contact with both Mesopotamia and Egypt. Mesopotamian cuneiform, notably the Akkadian language, could be interpreted in Egypt as shown by the Ormana letters dated around 1400 BC sent from Canaan. These clay tablets were found in Upper Egypt, which of course means Southern Egypt, well distanced from Canaan. They were discovered in the late 19th century and were written in Akkadian. From these, it is easy to see that the eventual translation of cuneiform tablets of Genesis would not have been an issue. The composition of Genesis would have been quite simply a matter of linking the separate accounts to form a single narrative. According to Wiseman, this was done by Moses in the wilderness. With some minor editing, such as Moses assigning to him what would have been modern place names, 
Roland Harrison wrote, quoting, His approach, which had the distinct advantage of relating the ancient Mesopotamian sources underlying Genesis to an authentic Mesopotamian life situation, unlike the attempts of the Graf Wellhausen school, showed that the methods of writing and complimation employed in Genesis were in essential harmony with the processes current among the scribes of ancient Babylonia, end quote. As a reminder, the Graf Wellhausen School is the documentary theory of the previous episode. Harrison goes on to state that Wiseman's theory is generally disregarded by scholars who follow the documentary hypothesis, since the primary basis of the documentary hypothesis is that the Pentateuch is a work composed by unknown editors and authors who lived well after Moses. He continues in maintaining that this methodology causes these scholars to overlook valuable information, such as archaeological finds and a knowledge of the literary conventions in the ancient Near East that help explain the biblical text. Donald Wiseman, Percy's son, and a professor of Assyriology, or the study of ancient Assyria, wrote the foreword to the revised edition of his father's book. The senior Wiseman's book was published in 1936, and the junior Wiseman's revision was published in 1985. In this revision, it was noted that since the first had been written, Many more colophons had been discovered among Babylonian cuneiform text. Texts from Syria and Mesopotamia showed the stability in the tradition of scribal education and literary practices for more than two millennia, specifically the practice of giving fixed and dated points. The junior wise men particularly valued the implication of this theory for their early use of writing. Getting back to the elder wise men, and no, not one of the ones from the Gospels, he believed that for Genesis there were probably 11 tablets, and they were divided as the first tablet, which covered the first and part of the second chapters of Genesis, was written by God himself. The second tablet, covering chapters 2 through the first verse of chapter 5, was written by Adam. The third tablet, for chapters 5 and a portion of 6, was written by Noah. The fourth tablet, for chapters 6 through the first verse of chapter 10, was written by Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The fifth tablet, covering chapters 10 and a portion of 11, was written by Shem. The sixth tablet, covering a portion of the 11th chapter, was written by Terah. The seventh tablet, covering chapters 11 through a portion of chapter 25, was written by Isaac. The eighth tablet, covering a portion of chapter 25, was written by Ishmael and Isaac. The ninth tablet, written by Jacob, covers the remainder of chapter 25 and runs through the beginning of chapter 37. The tenth tablet, written by Esau and Jacob, covers a portion of chapter 36, and the eleventh tablet, covering Genesis chapter 37 through the beginning of Exodus 1, was written by Jacob's twelve sons. When I was first writing the text for this episode, I intended to cover each tablet in depth. But to do the matter justice, it would have added about another 20 minutes, or perhaps even more, to the podcast, putting the length outside the target 25 minutes total. Not to mention that there is a great deal of necessary detail, which is quite frankly not my intent in this podcast. My objective, as I've stated many times, is to talk you through how the church's history collides with world history. The detail of the proposed structure of these theorized tablets is really neither part of church history nor world history. If you are interested, just Google Wiseman Tablet Theory and you will find what you need. If you want me to point you in a more precise direction, simply email me at the address at the end of this podcast, and I'll forward a list of places to find more information. But back to the theory. 
In a similar vein, critics do not hesitate in pointing out the flaws within Wiseman's theory. I'm not going to dissect each criticism, but instead I'll walk you through a single example. Rest assured that the other criticisms are built upon the same foundation. As an example, critics point out the observation that in every occurrence of the phrase Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it seems perfectly in context, and in doing so works against its identification as a recurring tablet marker. Remember, these are markers that link one clay tablet to the next. It has been suggested that Wiseman's hypothetical tablet markers are more perceived than real, or maybe any occurrences of the tablet marker which seemed out of context were deleted by a later editor. This is possible where the significance of such markers were understood. The fact that in chapter 7, verse 13, and chapter 10, verse 1, the phrase occurs in conjunction with the sons of Noah and seems redundant further complicates the issue. Unless, of course, there were other men by the same name. Also, the attribution of most of Noah's story to his sons, presumed to be in the fourth tablet, seems odd, unless Noah wrote the tablet for his sons and in their name. Last, Ham's own admission of his indiscretion and cursing in chapter 9, verses 20 through 27 seems unlikely. My thought on this last part, about Ham's admission, is that it is in parallel to what we see in the New Testament at the time of the crucifixion. Why would Peter admit that he denied Jesus three times, or that no one waited outside the tomb for Jesus to rise? Unless, of course, the actors were flawed humans and their actions, as recounted, were true. Finally, to critics of the tablet theory, Wiseman never properly deals with certain pieces of history that were not witnessed by the theorized writer, such as Babel in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. The geographic area of Babel was presented in the previous chapter as having been populated by the descendants of Nimrod, the son of Cush. Babel is presented as an historical account, but no attribution of authorship is made. Not to forget that whatever was written before Babel, as the story goes, would have been indecipherable afterwards. Victor Hamilton, a North American biblical scholar, states that Wiseman's hypothesis was, quoting, the first rigorous attempt to explain the introductory colophons. End quote. But Hamilton also identifies several problems with the theory. First, quoting again, In five instances where the formula precedes a genealogy, it is difficult not to include the colophon with what follows. End quote. Next, the approach requires the doubtful explanation that Ishmael was partially responsible for writing the history of Abraham, and Isaac was responsible for Ishmael's history, Esau for Jacob's, and Jacob for Esau's history. The last problem Hamilton identifies is that Genesis is written as a narrative, not as a biography, as the theory would suggest. Therefore, Wiseman's theory has been largely dismissed by both higher critics and conservative traditionalists. Even in this short summary of Wiseman's theory, it is somewhat clear that there are attributes along with difficulties, even obvious inconsistencies, when compared to other theories. But overall, the origin of Genesis' writing is probably more complex than any one theory can account for. Having said that, the hypothesis has major strengths. Unlike the documentary hypothesis, it is based upon a knowledge of ancient methods of writing. In this way, the theory is somewhat objective, while the documentary theory is based upon a subjective evaluation of the text. The tablet theory takes Genesis virtually as is without extensive modifications to fit its presumptions. But at the same time, it does not make the broad, spurious, and unscripted assumption based on tradition solely that the book was dictated to Moses by God. The theory also explains the repetitions found in the text, 
such as the dual genealogies of Esau in Genesis 36. All of the original tablets, assuming they ever existed, have been long and completely lost, so we don't know anything about what they were like. For emphasis, this bears repeating. The clay tablets of Wiseman's theory have never been found. He is using the structure of the books and comparing them to other writings from the region and era to speculate that they did exist at one time. All of his theory is from textual evidence, not from physical remains. So, almost by definition, his theory can never really be proven or disproven, and perhaps will always remain just a theory. Overall, the truth is not subject to vote, and we will probably never in our lives, at least, know the origin of Genesis without having at least some doubt. So there is definitely space for this theory along with the others. That's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll recount the creation story, or as some like to think of it, the creation stories, as presented in the book of Genesis. I'll also look into various creation stories from elsewhere in the world and attempt to tie them all together. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase The Church is the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening and have a great week.